Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast, powered by Exabel. I'm Mark Fleming-Williams. In this episode, I speak to Jeffrey Allen of Echo Ridge, a provider of US legislation alternative data. Echo Ridge's unique data set uses Jeffrey's past experience as a lobbyist to predict the passage of the 250,000 pieces of legislation in the various US governments every year and their likely effects on stocks. In other news, two alternative data events are coming up for Londoners. Join us this Thursday at Fora Brick Lane for presentations and networking with Saeed Amin and Alexander Denev showcasing their book of alternative data. Secondly, next Tuesday, I'm speaking on a panel at a leading point event in Shoreditch with the topic, Is Alternative Data Still Alternative? Come along and join us. So, Jeff, you're the founder and CEO of Echo Ridge, which is a, I think, a fascinating um, alternative data provider. What kind of uh, alternative data does, does Echo Ridge provide? Echo Ridge looks at the regulatory and legislative landscape in the United States to see what particular pieces of legislation or regulatory actions will affect companies and how they'll affect companies. And then additional data within the periphery of that, such as when there's interested parties investing based on those legislative type activities. For example, a senator buys or sells uh, stock based on some legislation he, he's involved with uh, or similar data to that. That's the, that's the kind of core of our data set. Fantastic. Okay, so it is an interesting data set which I haven't I haven't seen this this before. How do, let's go back and understand how we got here. Um, you've you've had a long and and, and uh, interesting career, diverse career, including currently studying a PhD in international business, might I add. But um, why don't we go back to uh, how did how did Echo Ridge come about and go back as far as you as you need to. So. I would say uh, working in the industry and the technology industry for about 20 years, I ended up as part of the uh, early team with a startup called Lottery.com in San Francisco. This was in 2015. The role I assumed there was to head up business strategy for the company, and that involved business development, uh, payment partner systems, more mundane things of that nature. But being that it's a lottery-based or uh, a lottery-involved company. We also had a lot of regulatory affairs that needed to be managed. We needed to deal with state level governments. We needed to have certain laws passed so that we can modernize the lottery system in the U.S. You were based in San Francisco and Lottery.com was a was a kind of online lottery of some sort, was it? Lottery.com is a provider of mobile software systems that enable people to buy lottery tickets online. And uh, at the time it was in the United States, that was fairly a novel idea and everything was still being done by paper. Okay. Okay. So it was, it was fitting into, um, is there a national lottery in, in the United States? There's not. Every lottery here is run and regulated by the states themselves. There's 42 states that run lotteries. Okay. It's a, it's a very positive. It's, I think it's increasingly seen as a positive thing in the UK, just because all of that money goes into, it seems to help us in the Olympics and things like that. It's seen as, as, as a lot of money going to good causes. Is it seen the same way in America? So here, by and large, lottery funds are used to uh, fund education uh, at the primary to uh, senior high school levels. So 
it is relatively uh, viewed as a positive thing, but it's also still got something of uh, the negative gambling connotation that goes yeah. with it. So part of our battle wasn't only to modernize laws so that the technology could work, but also uh, winning hearts and minds, to use that phrase, so that the lottery could kind of advance to the next stage. And I think it's fair to say we're woefully behind. And if you look at the UK lottery, for example, where you guys are technologically and operationally, we're a good 10 to 15 years behind that here. Oh, really? Well, I, I remember the launch. It was kind of back in 97 or something, and it was a big, exciting thing. Um but the uh, and just 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 last thing on this is it is it the um, is it the more religious states which are not running lotteries does it follow that? Um, there's certainly that factor playing into it. I have been to some states where it has been, and I quote here, described to me as sin. So that, that was the that was a bigger uphill battle to get past those uh, regulatory hurdles when the decision makers felt a moral conviction to impede progress. Very interesting digression. Um, but so you were working, you were working for Lotto.com and and Lottery.com, and as we see, that involved a lot of talking to governments. Um, so you got a you got a very good front row seat into into everything that that entails. Yes, I would say that I probably I saw how the sausage was made. It wasn't definitely uh, it wasn't something I was I was I would say eager to be involved with, but it was a necessary part of the job. And with that though. Uh, there was also the need to understand what was getting results and what wasn't. So we sat down and we started to compile data about what we were doing. And this is something that had never been undertaken, a more quantitative approach to understanding government affairs. When you when you say what was getting results and what wasn't, it was you were trying to you were trying to introduce ideas into state legislation. You were trying to get them through state legislation. And in some in some states it was working and in others it wasn't. That is correct. And so okay. we had many methods we would go to and there was the playbook essentially to do it. And uh, no one really understood. Everything was qualitative. And so we wanted to kind of bring some some hard math to what was going on. And this is ultimately what culminated in the data, which would lead to founding Echo Ridge. OK, so you were trying to it was qualitative in that it often came down to the the whims of a single person who was some kind of decision maker in in that state or, or what do you mean by qualitative so the when you were working with large government affairs teams at these these massive law firms that engage in these type of activities like lobbying and strategy and so on for the state level a lot of the times you would say how are things going where are we how many months do we need to progress this and oftentimes if you spoke to someone on your team you would get the optimistic best best scenario uh, output. And it would often be based on their gut feel, rumors and gossip and so on. And there was very little data behind driving that. And I thought coming out of, you know, big business backgrounds that that would be unacceptable in any corporate environment where we had very little metrics to go by to be able to track what was happening and how we were spending our money. So that's where we decided that we needed to we needed to intervene and put a process and get some better understanding about how things were actually progressing on the government side. I've got a hazy anecdotal memory of I, I spent a couple of years in Austin, Texas, and being told by Texans that actually uh, the state government in Austin, Texas runs for three months a year or something like that. Does that does that sound right? That it's that it's it was it sounded like a very um, like a not very productive well maybe they're incredibly productive in that short time but it sounded like they were 
not a, well definitely not all year round does, does that sound right as a as a as a thing so i'm not sure the length of their session like it it may be three months or so like you said but it only yeah. happens once every two years that's where there we you go yeah that okay. sort of is the problem and and the other, I think, side of that is some governments do run year-round as full-time legislators. Uh, for example, New York State is one that runs all year, every year. And the problem, I guess, there is that you do have this, you know, there's a lot of disparity on how state governments actually run day-to-day -day and year-to-year. And so figuring that out, too, is also part of the strategy, because if you come, for example, into the wrong year in Texas, nothing's going to get passed until the legislature reconvenes. Exactly. Exactly. That was going to be my question. So there is there is procedural things in terms of different subtleties and different different states to um, to understand this. So broadly, um, I, I'm just getting my head around the, the problem that you're laying out, which is that you are uh, you're 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 trying to introduce the same idea into different states. And as a result, you're seeing how how the different ones work. Correct. So. You did that. You started building up a kind of your own personal data set on 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 how this worked. Was this because it was a um, you were having to go back with repeated repeated like new legislation? Um, you know, two years down the line, it would be useful to know afterwards, or was it for your own kind of personal interest? Well, there's there's a, a certain element of that, yes, and then there's other factors. For example, and I'll I'll kind of give you the the most basic case here. We started to notice that certain tactics and strategies succeeded in one market and would fail in another. And we started to kind of, you know, do a little bit of A-B testing, if you will. And for example, when I would go into a heavily Democrat-leaning state, and I, I probably will regret giving away my, uh, tr uh, my secrets of the trade here, but uh, I would go into a heavily Democrat-leaning state like Massachusetts, and I would say, think of the children. The children need the money from the education funding, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that resonated in heavily Democrat-leaning states. Then I would go into heavily Republican-leaning states, and I would say, we don't need more government regulation around the lottery. We need to champion small business, and we need less government intervention and interference in business. And that resonated with the Republican-leaning states. So I would often have to customize my message and my approach, and even the wording in the legislation that we would propose so that it hit the right buttons with the right audiences. And we started to notice that there were patterns like this within these states, depending on the partisanship leaning of the state. And this actually led later on into the Echo Ridge data as well. Mm. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing where this is going. So you're building and so you're building rules. How are you to, how did you end up turning that quantitative? So we started to, the more data we compiled, obviously, the more analysis and, um, you know, uh, the more understanding we gained from that data. And so ultimately, I went back to the founders at lottery.com and I said to them, look, guys, there's a huge opportunity here. And I said, I know I'm important to what you're doing at Lottery, but I think it would be more important if we could then spin this off into something on its own. And ultimately that's uh that's where echo ridge came from and um so i i took my leave from my associates there although they stayed involved they're actually uh they're actually shareholders within echo ridge now so they had enough belief mm. in what i was doing to get on board with it uh and back me they were the first two backers i had and so that's that is what led to the founding of echo ridge 
Fantastic. And so that's up to August 2018. What 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 um, shape was the was the data set in at that point? <clears throat> so we had an idea when in August 2018, we knew we wanted to do something with legislative data. We didn't quite know what the most obvious choice seemed to be that we use our capabilities to uh, both parse all of this massive amount of data and also uh, create some predictions based on what we had learned in our time working at lottery.com and sell it to the basically the government relations industry lobbyists and so on. And it's everyone was like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. We, that sounds like it will fly. But then we started to actually do it and we learned that no one in that industry had the type of money necessary to be able to build an actual customer base from this, which would support a startup. Yeah. So. Um, we had to tweak that a little bit more. And what we ended up coming up with by about a year later, say August of 2019, we had developed our first predictive analytics model. We were able to systematize and automate the large majority of the predictive efforts we were undertaking and do that on scale where we could ingest, you know, 100,000 or more pieces of legislation and be able to turn around a prediction for every one of those um, based on a set of uh, rules which looked at things like partisanship, which looked at the tone of the language that was used within the legislation. Is this is this using um, is this quantitative in terms of using NLP to look at the tone? We do look at we do use NLP to look at the tone as one part of what we do. There's other factors that go into there where we look at. Uh, in particular, the we found that the leaning of the legislature in terms of partisanship, as well as the partisanship of the sponsors of the bill, how it's mixed, whether or not it's bipartisan and so on, the influence of the individual sponsor of the bill or the main sponsor, as well as when the legislation was introduced during the legislative calendar cycle. And so there's a lot of factors that are considered by the neural network. And so, uh, yes, NLP is one. And then there's there's a good probably 40 other data points that it looks at as well. And so you've trained, you've put, you've uh, in, inserted all of these as potential variables, and then you've trained a model based on all of the history of legislation. And so now you've created a predictive model for 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 going forward based on the the new variables of new legislation as you put it in. Is that is that correct? That's correct. So we do have a, a predictive variable that is. Uh, basically weighted between zero to uh, one and then a fractional number, sorry, a decimal number of 0.51 or above indicates that the legislation will pass. Um, the closer to one that number is, the more um, confident we are. Yes. And so that's, that's one. And the other part of this is we also further structure the data, uh, clean it up to make it usable um, for various output purposes. Um, and we run additional NLP on the data to be able to assign a GICS category to what the legislation will affect from the fourth level GICS, so the eight digit sub-industry. And then a secondary uh, matching is done where we then match up tickers to the GICS so that we can then tell a specific piece of legislation likely to pass or fail. This is what it's about this is the industry it will affect or the sub-industry it will affect. And these are all the tickers that are going to be affected by it. How much, how, so, um, so first of all, uh, can you give me a, some kind of numbers around how big the legislative, how, how many legislations are, are brought through every year across, across all, the, all the different states? So all 50 states and the federal government combined 
we're probably looking at around 200, 250,000 pieces of legislation in any given year. It's amazing, isn't it? it it's it's mind boggling how much time they waste on things like this. Yes. But um, I was just going to say in years like COVID, obviously, we saw a big drop on the amount of legislation, as well as the topic of legislation very much being towards COVID relief. But during normal years, you would expect a pretty decent amount of a, a very mixed variety of legislation. And so to hammer the point home, let's take every so um, one piece of legislation, which is running in Ohio, um, and then you will, that's all, um, You there will be a data point for when it was proposed, there will be a data point for who proposed it, there'll be a data point for the exact um, uh, party makeup of, of the Ohio um, state government, there'll be one for, um, you know, I mean... Uh, there'll be one for all of those and and many more um and when uh because i'm going to really show my lack of knowledge of us politics here but because uh and ohio is a night one a nightmare one to have chosen because it's a it's a purple state isn't it but um yeah. because ohio right now is red or blue um i think they might be slightly red leaning but there's definitely a purple element they're very similar to yeah many Let's say it's a heavy red red state, um, and because it because it's a uh, democratic, it was proposed by a Democrat in a in a heavy red state. Then potentially, you know, that might skew it towards a um, towards zero, and then it'd be unlikely to, um, to 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 pass. And then you're adding in all the other variables in order to um, to to make that number more um, more exact. Is that is that a fair summation? I would say that's correct and then you would have to look at some things like for example is the democrat the only sponsor of the bill or are there additional co-sponsors um and then for example does this democrat sponsor have a history of successes with passing legislation and the republican leaning legislatures those are the types of things that we would add into that to further refine it they the binary approach to say, you know, um, a D is introducing a piece of legislation in an R held legislature, so it's going to fail, is uh, too too general and too vague to really be useful because oftentimes we know that there's nuance to that, and um, oftentimes things can pass depending on how it's been finessed into the system. Um, even though it looks like on the surface, it might be dead from the start. In terms of the data, how much of that is automated? Are, are you using the data? Is it very nicely um, issued by the state government in, in easily crunchable formats? And so you can just ingest it easily? Or is there is there, is there some, some work involved there as well? I think that the data for each government, um, state government, as well as the federal government, the data comes out pretty well formatted from the beginning. The problem is it's 51 different formats. So we need to get to a system where we, we, uh, we basically clean the data so that it's usable for our analysis purposes. And we, uh, we want to uh, standardize it across the board to make it, you know, ingestible. And then the, variety. So for example, the description field is a field that we always find, but the description field may be used quite differently between states. For example, some states just restate the title of the bill inside the description field. Other states might give you a 500 word explanation of what the bill is about the description field. So we have to deal with variables like that as well when we're dealing with the data. 
presumably this is a thing which will get easier with time because as you say there's 51 but there's not going to be about to be 53 well there may be but they're not about to be 63 um so once you've got that nailed then that is that will be a like the 53 51 formats will be it going forwards type thing so so that's it's a it's a setup cost rather than an ongoing problem right and i think once you have the rules established about how you clean it up and automate that then it becomes even easier because i could for example now if i have a good data source to get eu data i could start ingesting eu data and because we've set up our rules and our structure for how we handle that ingestion um it does certainly make it a lot easier than take any new data source and start to onboard it. Using this data and using this, uh, using your algorithm, you are um, uh, confident of being able to predict the likely outcome of um, legislation, which is currently in, in, in process and um, able to highlight what is going to be affected down to, down to the ticker level in terms of, um, uh yeah so it's it's going to go down to hit that sector and then potentially that 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 ticker who is um who is the client for this data so we came into this and obviously the first clients we thought of were hedge funds and there was a there was definitely a use case particularly on the discretionary side we do have some hedge funds now trying to turn this into a uh, a quant solution I am waiting for them to kind of uh, show me what they produced before I kind of weigh in whether or not I think it could be used for a quant um, approach. But uh, then there were some others that came um, came to us, which we hadn't really considered. In particular, we've seen a lot of interest from the PE side, which makes sense. Although the PE side tends to be more on a um, acute or a um, one-off type uh, approach. They'll have a particular project they're interested in. And they'll say, "Hey, what do you guys have on this particular area in this company?" But I, I'm I'm intrigued as to how a private equity firm would use this because a private equity firm, you think a PE firm might use it to 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 work out what company to buy, or once they've decided what company to buy, this is a, the legislative. Um, future is is something which might um, affect. They want to they want to kind of cover themselves in case legislation is about to change. Do you know do you do you know how they how they picture using it? Actually, both of those cases are correct. So the first is they're looking for opportunities based on where they think there's going to either be regulation that props up one particular sector or industry, and then there's the case also where they're looking at risk because they're thinking about a particular industry and they don't want to kind of jump in head first without knowing the risks that exist out there. Other use cases, though, are they have company XYZ in mind and they call us and they say, what are the opportunities and risks for this company? And most of the time what we're seeing is PE is very much interested in the regulatory landscape from an opportunity point of view and industries that are now considered highly regulated like online gaming or legalized marijuana or those type of industries which are so heavily regulated but are heading in the direction of becoming legalized across all of the states mm. that it's not not a question of if but rather when because then they can chart growth opportunities yeah and that's kind of how they're using that data there and so then once you've decided once you've decided on a on a thing like legalizing ca cannabis then you can track it and you can get ahead of what where it's coming next and be buying into the opportunities just before they arrive, perhaps. 
Correct. And so we are usually able to give them anywhere from six months to a year advance notice of this due to the way that we do the predictions and things are introduced legislatively. We know, uh, for example, and, and this is kind of a, a recent yet good example of the type of data we deal in. So there was a piece of legislation in California introduced in 2019 when we were, we were very early on in doing this, but it was one that we caught. It was called AB5. AB5 where it was basically a law that the legislature wanted to pass, which would require all gig economy companies to reclassify contractors to full-time employees, including the benefits and employment taxes that go with that. Obviously, a very bad thing for the gig economy companies who rely on this army of contractors, their drivers and delivery people and so on, but very good for the employees because then they would get benefits uh, that they wouldn't get otherwise. And so it was introduced in March of 2019, and ultimately it was passed and signed into law by their governor in mid-September of 2019. We knew in March that it was going to pass. And so we had a good six months advance notice that this was coming and it was going to be monumental because it may only be one state, but it's California, the most basically the most populous state in the country. And a huge, huge portion of these gig economies um, markets. And so and not only that, it was also influential because as soon as California introduced that, then New York also came up with a similar type bill that they introduced. Um, and, and so there's this domino effect as well. And so if you knew that risk was coming, then you certainly would want to steer clear of the Ubers and Lyfts of the world. Or if you were on the maybe on the VC or PE side, you wouldn't want to be doing a private investment into any of the other companies that were at, uh, popular at the time. So that was something that we had a good amount of warning about. And it would have been very interesting for investors to kind of avoid that because there was obviously the opportunity to short companies like Uber and Lyft at the time, which obviously that happened too. And there was about, I think I read in within 72 hours, there was about 250 million made on shorting those two companies. Mm. Um, but if you had a greater advance notice with a high degree of certainty that this was going to happen as a fund manager, you could certainly make a lot more. Um, you could, you could prepare to better take advantage of it. For sure. Very interesting. I feel um, I can see potentially the discretionary and, um, and um, uh, quantitative uh, angles in this, perhaps in terms of there, as you say, did you say there are 250,000 um, a, a roughly uh, piece of legislation coming through across the United States every year? But so most of them wouldn't necessarily have a massive impact, but a lot of them would have perhaps a small impact on on the stock price of specific tickers. Perhaps if it's if it's a small state and it's going to affect you know a, a, a grocery business in that state or whatever, um, and so perhaps a um, there could be a kind of arbitrage. Lots of lots of small opportunities to be made from from these from these smaller pieces of legislation and then at the other end of the scale is this huge uber lift california you know one of these one of the larger companies in the united states being affected in one of the larger states where they're most affected and then you can that could be perhaps more of a discretionary opportunity is that is that how you see it i absolutely see it like that and i fully agree that some of the times you'll come across these you know these big um, influential pieces of legislation that, you know, shock an industry. But most of the time, it's a culmination of a bunch of small things. So for example, privacy, where we don't really have anything at the federal level here in the United States. So states themselves are starting to adopt it. And it's interesting because privacy is a very bipartisan issue. Um, 
it's Republicans and Democrats both agree that there needs to be increased control over companies that deal in that type of data. But it's not going to be, you know, North Dakota introducing their private privacy bill that kind of interrupts the industry. It's going to be a culmination of 15 states throughout the Midwest now that create this massive amount of um, of uh, geography that's covered by new privacy regulation. And that's what's going to affect. And that's what we're seeing, for example, in the online gaming industry as well. So this year alone, we've had 13 states legalize online gaming. And this is, comes back to your question, too, on our customers. We, we've been tracking this for a particular SPAC. Uh, the SPAC is using our data to be able to validate industry potential for their investors. And to that end, these 13 states, none of them are very you know, huge or important states. It's not Massachusetts, California, New York, or anything like that. But it's 13 states that combined maybe make up one California. Mm. And... So that's kind of how I see it as well. And if there is a quant use case, I do believe it will be in the much smaller culmination of a lot of that legislation um, and how it affects particular uh, industries and shares. How do you see your product improving? And we we talked about the the problems and the automate automation that can happen around um, wrangling the data and the and the kind of data inputs and creating you know molds into which you can you can you can funnel these these pieces of data. How how um, how how else is it going to get easier and better and smoother and and um, how do you how do you see it progressing? So for us now, we're looking for data on the peripheries where we can expand and broaden our data sets coverage. So I mentioned earlier about the senators buying and selling shares. That's our latest um, addition to the data where we do now track every single uh, buy or sell of a, of a particular stock by senators. And then we go back and we see, is there legislation in that GIX sub-industry that that senator is a part of? that affects those shares, because that's a very indicative move there. If a senator buys or sells in that case, I mean, it's quasi, I mean, I don't want to call it insider trading. Gonna, suppose, yeah, you're going to work with it. You should, you should work with the FBI on this. I'm sure they'd be very interested in your, in your data. I mean, it's, it's anyone's argument as to how ethical it is, but the reality is it should be considered a signal for what's going to happen. So there's, so there's data potential there. Um, international? Internationally, we do have some interest. Uh, we've seen a lot of interest actually in doing the same with EU. Um, and we think that we can do it quite easily. The problem has been getting uh, good, reliable sources of data for that. And uh, mm. so it's probably on our roadmap, but I'd say it's probably a year or a year from half from now. Um, but that's kind of where we're heading with it internationally. It's... Um... So uh, Europe-wise, Europe has a very good statistics office, um, which would be very good if you were trying to scrape all the European numbers. But I wonder if, I don't know how good the, the legislation office is and their, their distribution capabilities. Because the other thing about Europe is, is language, isn't it? That, you, you, that you're coping with a whole different kettle of fish there. Um, so, yeah. That is one thing, but we've experimented a little bit. We worked... We've, we've done a little bit of testing with Thomson Reuters and their output of Asian, East Asian uh, data. And we, we looked at Japan in particular, since we have a little bit of connection there. I have a little bit of connection there in the business community. And so we started to realize that because of the way our neural network functions, it was somewhat language independent. We were still able to make uh, decent, accurate predictions, even when the language was not English. So 
that makes sense since we do largely run unsupervised neural networks and we let them determine what data points are most important and weight them as they see fit. Um, so it does make it a little bit less of a challenge with the language issues. I think um, just while we talk about this, I think perhaps a, a political economist and uh, someone doing their their, their politic, international politics PhD could have a, have a lot of interest in your, if you do succeed in going international, then what it could tell someone is an awful lot about how laws get made in different cultures and different countries. So, and, and, you know, different types of government, all of your data so far, it sounds like is, is all within the United States. So it's all within one system. But when you start setting into, you know, the European union and, and, and understanding exactly how there's, there's a lot of talk about whether, you know, the big, the big uh, countries essentially bully the small countries into doing what they want. That might, I don't know, that might start showing up in your data and start really informing some people's political theses. What do you think? I agree with that. And I do think that, uh, and one of the things we're, you know, speaking of our data set and how we're expanding that, probably something that we'll see come online within the next two quarters is sentiment and influence in terms of how legislation influences sentiment on the public side and then how public sentiment influences the legislation that gets proposed because we see it as very cyclical and we think having further insights to that for investors would be very useful because if you can jump on a trend when you know it's still in the public sentiment stage or vice versa how the public will react to a piece of legislation and that will in turn affect stocks that's going to be more valuable information that we can start to add to this picture we're developing. We, we feel like, again, legislation itself is not like the have all end all for being able to predict how, you know, markets are affected and so on as much as um, getting a broader picture as to legislation affects X, Y, and Z. And then those factors then affect markets. Understanding that relationship is very important. And I think to that end, what, 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 what would X, Y, and Z be? Potentially. So X, X, Y, and Z might, for example, be one of the things that we're very closely looking at right now is a piece of legislation gets introduced and then the social media feeds of companies. We know that there's research out there to support sentiment within companies' social media postings are indicative of a good or bad quarter earnings report. So we're now starting to look when the company perceives a piece of legislation, for example, as a threat or opportunity by differing the tone within their social media postings so that we can then anticipate what's going to happen with their earnings reports. So there's definitely this, there definitely is a chain of events or a series of events that lead to these outcomes. And we're now identifying what happens in between so that we get a better feel and we start to, you know, develop a more broad understanding of how really um, legislation becomes an integral part of what's going on here in markets. It sounds like a lot of crunching that you're going to be doing. So, um, so I, I think uh, I, 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 I don't envy you, but it'll be incredibly valuable and, and powerful once you, once you, once you, once you've explored all these avenues. So, um, so very exciting indeed. Um, is there anything I haven't touched on, which is, um, uh, which is uh, also relevant and, and, and interesting? I think we've covered most of what I would consider kind of the major points. Uh, we're certainly excited about what we're doing. We know it's the first of its kind, particularly in the all data world. Um, we are, you know, excited also to kind of go out there and explore some opportunities with other all data companies where we can maybe find some places to collaborate with our data and theirs so that we can again 
continue expanding on our breadth of knowledge there and how the cycle, the political cycle affects what's happening in business. So yeah, I, I think that's kind of it from our side. Fantastic. Well, Jeffrey, thanks so much. Um, really interesting stuff. And, um, and I will be, I'll be, I'll be watching with interest because it's, I think it's fascinating. All right. Sounds great. Thanks, Mark. Thanks.